Hello and welcome, esteemed gamers, friends, listeners. It is Leighton here from Leighton Night with Brian Wecht, and I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking to get even more podcast goodness to put in your face, then we've got just the thing for you, which is the official Leighton Night Patreon. We have several tiers where you can get access to recommendation lists for every episode, listen to Patreon-exclusive minisodes, get into the super awesome fan Discord, and watch videos like Brian's songwriting process for jingles on the show, or me taking apart and cleaning my mechanical keyboards. It's really fun and cool, and we super appreciate your support. It's neat. We would love to see you there. Without any further ado, here's the episode. Enjoy. Love you. Bye. stretching oh yeah you gotta stretch to be warmed up for the podcast yeah that's right i didn't stretch uh adequately i normally do 30 minutes of podcasting yoga before i start (laughs) recording and i do my own form of podcasting yoga it involves hitting my head against the wall repeatedly in reps of three (laughs) dude kevin thank you for coming back on this show i guess you've forgotten what it was like last time so (laughs) i remember i'm happy to be here (laughs) we we've been wanting to have you back on for a while because we had a lot of fun last time and we're big fans of the stuff you do we talk about your channel all the time oh that's so nice i'm not even kidding like it's like a regular topic of conversation like did you see the latest video about like you come up a lot in conversation because what you do is so great oh thank you that that means a lot you know what i'm just going to get right to the meat of this right away I'm asking a deep question. <gasps> okay. How, how are you? <laughs> oh, I'm good. I'm no longer anxious as I was at the beginning of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as now that I know the end of the question, I am good. I'm doing great. I'm currently making a lot of stuff. I've been really focused on a few projects. And yeah, I know I, I'm just good. I'm, I'm doing well. How are you doing? You know what? Or both of you. This is dare I say the ultimate guest, Kevin, you, because you, you, you actually asked about us for a change and, no, and people typically don't do that. Well, instead so, of us just simply monopolizing the conversation to make it about us, as is the late night tradition. That's right. To fully ignore the guest answer and just talk about whatever bullshit <laughs> we have. Top oh, of I know mind. that trick. I know that trick. <laughs> I mean, I do it because I'm just on autopilot whenever I'm hosting something and right. I'm like, oh, I know something I can talk about for three minutes without thinking. Yep, exactly. And then hopefully it's relevant to whatever the last 30 seconds are of whatever yeah. the person was saying. Yes. It's like a game. You got to work yourself back to the guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, how am I? I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I don't know how it is in your part of the country, but uh, over here it's June and uh, <laughs> summer summer has begun and it's it's nice, you know. I, like many people in the world, I consider summer one of the top four seasons and <laughs> it's nice to be fully in it. So I, I'm, I'm good. Every, every time I say this, people think I'm lying, but I swear it is true. I'm not going to elevate this to a syndrome, but I have like reverse seasonal effective thing where I love it when it's dark and cold and the sun sets at 4 p.m. And I am less happy typically during summer when it's hotter and sunnier. And the days are longer. So I'm not thrilled that it's warmer and sunnier, but I am happy to be out of the school year 
which is mainly relevant for my kid, uh, and into a new season where summer camp is operative. There you go. That's nice, Brian. Yeah. Layton, how are you? Uh, I'm, f- I'm fine. All right, moving on. Yeah, good. That's what I wanted from saying I'm fine. Great. Neat. I feel like we should introduce the show unprecedented this early in, but uh, everybody welcome to Layton Night with Brian Wecht, which is the podcast you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Over there, we have Brian Wecht. Right here, we got Layton Gray. Should I say my signature thing I say? <sighs> sure. What up? <laughs> is that on a t-shirt yet yes yeah I, i've scrawled it on a white t-shirt and black yeah. and mystery guest would you care to introduce yourself for the second time hi my name is kevin perger i am a video maker documentarian that makes videos on the youtube channel defunct land hooray we did it we did do it did we talk about last time how you have the coolest last name like you win last names I don't know if we did talk about that last time. I don't think we did. Let's get into it. Let's go deep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do, what do you... Yeah. Well, so h- how does it feel to have your last name be a crime? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Late night listeners, due to ongoing legal troubles, we had to edit out the riff on Kevin's last name. So uh, I apologize for any inconvenience and uh, about half an hour of podcasting content has been deleted. Yeah, we did not mean to rope him into our, uh, you know, interstate legal problems that we've been going through. This is all on us. That's right. I've been indicted. Yes. (laughs) I did everything right. (laughs) <laughs> Nothing wrong. Here's the thing about getting indicted. It's usually for no reason. Right? <laughs> Anyone who gets indicted, like, it means you're fucking cool. <laughs> what the fuck are we doing, Brian? We're not even 10 minutes in and this is just falling apart. Look, if I may, I don't think it's falling apart if I said something and you both laughed at it. That means I'm doing comedy. And... Well, no, you, you're not doing comedy until you're yelling at an audience for not laughing. <laughs> oh, what is that not funny? That's comedy. Oh, you, you can't, can't say, say anything, anything anymore. anymore. You yes, can't say that? yes, that's right. Actually, I did have a, a medical announcement uh, that I wanted to say here, which is that, <laughs> that was um, straight up a fucking spit take. I don't that that. I gotta do. Hold on. Uh, I gotta unfortunately, I was recently diagnosed as having contracted the woke mind virus, <coughs> so uh, I, I, I am in treatment for it, and uh, uh, I'm hoping that it all works out. <laughs> What's the treatment for the woke mind virus? Dare I ask? It's uh, two exposures to the Joe Rogan podcast three times a day. <laughs> Great. Well, Kevin, it was great joining. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. This is my favorite conversation about theme parks I've ever had. <laughs> Usually when I go on podcasts, it's like, so what is your favorite theme park? Yeah. <laughs> it's nine minutes in and the woke mind virus has been introduced. Yeah, well, it's a it's a big problem in today's society. And, uh, <laughs> Fuck what? If Layton, 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 Wait, are we doing the Skinamarink trailer? Show. Are we doing? We're doing the Skinamarink trailer now on this show. <laughs> on this on show. show. Uh, so yeah, Layton, hold on, please, <laughs> oh, for once. 
allow me to speak just once, please, please. You have the floor. Uh, uh, I so you know, on this I show actually... we we really like to ask the guest <laughs> questions uh, that are that are that you know they maybe don't get asked constantly. I think we probably failed that goal a lot, but I feel like you know you make things on the internet for a certain period of time, and you kind of just get the same questions over and over. So we're really trying to hit you with things that nobody wanted to know. And would never ask. So, Kevin, what's your favorite theme park? (laughs) (laughs) How did you get the idea for your YouTube channel? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, finally. What are the most asked questions for you? You actually have already nailed them even before you started (laughs) ripping on them. I guess one of them would be, Perger, are you a liar? Is like a question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Then uh, how did you get the idea to start your YouTube channel? Mm -hmm. You know, and then... uh, what is your favorite defunct theme park ride? Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody that's asked me these questions, I've appeared on their show. I mean, I, I'm just happy to answer the question again. So Walt Disney, yeah, here we go. I'll go into my history spiel. <laughs> Walt Hell Disney yeah. had like six, luckily, thanks to Spider-Verse, we have a term for this. Canon events. Amazing. Thanks. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks. The media language has changed since I've done this bit last. But yeah, so like Walt Disney had so many canon events, like six of them, you know, the, his idea for Disneyland, his idea for Mickey Mouse, all those. And he changed his answer so many times in interviews that you can like put them back to back and have them. He's like, oh, I got the idea for Mickey Mouse when I was drawing and a little mouse jumped up on my cartoon stand. And I said, I should draw mm-hmm. that. And then one of them's like, I was on the train to Los Angeles and a mouse jumped up on the windowsill. <laughs> like, and you could like take, uh, Kevin, rules. how'd you start your YouTube channel? There's <laughs> just the 12 <laughs> different answers I've come up with to that question. That's awesome. I feel like the true tact is just start lying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here. But my wife Rachel used to do comedy on a cruise boat for six months, and was part of the Second City. And they had this like deal with Norwegian Cruise Lines where they would do like the Second City review and blah blah blah. And one of the things they did was they had one hour a week. By the way, this was like the best job ever. I think she worked six hours a week doing comedy. Like they had very little to do and it was super fun. But one of the things they would do in addition to the shows was a one hour presentation on the history of the second city, you know, cause it has people like Bill Murray and blah, 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 Gilda Radner, all these people who, who went through there. And it was like a slideshow and video of second city stuff. And what the improvisers would do is just make shit up out of whole cloth while presenting these slides. Like, you know, so famously, this was the time that uh, Bill Murray was abducted by aliens right before the performance and inflict themselves on these poor cruise patients week after week. Yeah, I feel like everything that happens on a cruise ship is being inflicted on the people on the cruise ship. Have you been on a cruise, Leighton? No, a cruise seems completely fucking miserable, but that might just be because I hate fun and going places. I love cruises. I've been on many cruises. I've probably been on 13 cruises. All right, best cruise, worst cruise. Well, I've been on many a Disney cruise over the years because they're uh, like a theme park, but at sea. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I view everything in world uh, uh-huh. the world. I eat at McDonald's because it's like a theme park, but a restaurant. <laughs> um, but the uh, I've also been on Princess. Okay. Uh, very different vibe. The casino ships are interesting. Is that Carnival or is that a different? Most ships have casinos. Disney's right. unique in that they don't. Mm-hmm. But everything revolves around the casino on certain ships. And that's that's the main hangout area. It's very interesting. And so 
they try to give you reasons to push you to shows sometimes. Like sometimes shows yeah. are just casino games put on live, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I found out before I went on one of my cruises because, well, that's a spoiler for a video I'm making. I played a live show casino bingo type game for a video. So yeah, no, I've been on many a cruise to answer your question. Well, what do you want to know about cruising? Wow. I have to say, just to, to say this, Layton, so I, I joined up with Rachel for uh, one of her week-long cruises and I was like, I'm going to fucking hate this. Why am I doing this? Never having thought of myself as a cruise aficionado. And you know what? It was fucking great. And I had an awesome time and I would definitely do it again. Wow. Well, the, the thing that I like most is the ship. And yes. that all the exit signs look like you're on a ship. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes you'll walk through areas and it's just it looks like you're on a ship. i like the parts of it that are a ship and i like that they have weird things they have to do because they're a ship like whenever a theme park opens there's no history to it there's no thing you have to do so poseidon won't murder you but like with a (laughs) ship because it's such a long and storied you know hundreds of probably thousands i don't even know how many years we've been sailing i mean thousands of years definitely thousands yes definitely thousands that they have all these things because back then, if you don't break a bottle on this thing before you go out on the ocean, then, you know, you're going to get killed by a Kraken or whatever they believed. <laughs> yeah, you're fucked. So, but they never stopped doing that. And so whenever they released the new like Odyssey of the Seas, Royal Caribbean, seven slides, tallest ship in the world, you know, giant nautical aqua theater on the edge and all these suites and rooms and casinos and, and restaurants, they still have to break a giant bottle. But they try to make it so the bottle is equivalent to the size of the ship because back in the day, you know, the ship would be, you know, it would fit 10 people. And so a normal... Right bottle would look fine proportionally but now that the ships are you know taller than most hotels they have to create these giant bottles they make giant bottles just for that yeah and then they they have to like swing them tarzan style so it actually breaks are they like glass or are they like breakaway like sugar glass or something i'm sure if you looked into it there would be some sort of environmental statement that says like the fish actually eat this because it's made of fish or something because could you imagine if a modern company just, just started did that dumping glass shards into yeah, the ocean shattered yeah. glass into the ocean yeah i don't know if it's actual champagne they fill it with there's a lot of videos of this i'm not making this up this is not a bit you can go watch cruise ship christenings and it's the f- coolest thing ever i mean That's it's also ridiculous awesome i don't know if that was interesting i think that was interesting no i love that if that was something tweet at me please dm <laughs> me on twitter if that was something uh, i'm glad it wasn't a bit because we do not, as we've established, do bits on this show. We have never done a bit and never will do a bit. So bits are not welcome. So true. I was uh, Googling these giant champagne bottles and for some reason, chocolate covered champagne bottles have come up and I can't think of a more useless what? object. It's like they dunk the entire thing in chocolate. To do what with? <laughs> Great question. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, so you're going to pour it and it's going to melt chocolate is the idea that you lick the melted chocolate off the... I mean, it's there's no... You can't get it... This is... Can you say lick the melted chocolate off the bottle one more time so we can get that clean? <laughs> well, you know, that bottle's not getting clean, so you're not getting a, a clean That's take of that. Well, okay. Yeah, talk to us about your cruise experiences other than just liking the general shipness of the ship. It's mainly the, the, the fact that it's a ship and the rooms are called state rooms and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I like that the uh, they have funnels. I really don't enjoy 
laying out. No, same. You know, which is a big thing. Uh, getting right. some sun. I'm, I'm not a big sun person. Nope, same. Um, and I'm not a big pool person on a crew. I'm not a big pool person either. So what do you do? I don't know. You, you I know really, what? I, I, I will say was surprising to me about the cruise, and maybe it shouldn't have been, but it was, is that at least on Norwegian, the food was really good. And they would have like the nicer restaurants. And I was continually surprised by how good the food was. I was expecting like C grade buffets. And instead, like the nice restaurants were really nice. Yeah, food is a huge thing. I enjoy the performances. I enjoy whenever there's a magician because I love magic. Yep. And it's interesting because there's really two types of magic. I'm sure there's more, but in my mind, there's only two. There's close-up magic and stage magic. And far magic. away magic, yeah. Yes. And <laughs> I mean, most magic that is far away magic is Vegas residencies yep. and, and permanent theater installations like Penn right. & Teller's magic yep. theater um, and so that you can do stuff that you can't do but a lot of the magicians on cruise ships is they're on one ship and then you let them off at nasa and they get on a totally different cruise line and so they have a briefcase full of tricks they can do pretty much but they have to do it on a stage mm-hmm. so it's always an interesting thing of can they hold an entire audience's attention with just a really simple card trick and some of those theaters are big too like thousands oh, yeah. of people like oh, 3000 yeah. person rooms right right and if you're doing magic then that's great you can saw someone in half or you can put somebody in a giant box and put swords through it but you can't carry that often on a cruise ship as casually as these magicians need to do it so they have like a deck of cards and they're just doing card tricks but like really far away and because these are not well-attended shows most of the time. Those are the, the musicals. They have everyone is spread out in the audience. So it's a really awkward atmosphere and a really interesting, <laughs> it's very quiet and the house lights are kind of on a little bit because there needs to be a certain amount of audience participation. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a school assembly, but with somebody <laughs> doing magic and, and people are leaving halfway through. So I like that. I thought some of the circus things were cool, like the circus type performers. I thought that was interesting. Oh, I've never seen one of those. I know that that's a big thing. Yeah. That's huge on Royal. I've never been on a Royal, but Norwegian had it. Yeah. Oh, you know what I love is Tell me. So Disney ships, if you want a Disney ship, there's only five. There's gonna be six. But if you want a Disney ship, you're what are they gonna do in the theater? You know what they're gonna do. It's gonna be a musical. They're gonna do mm-hmm. Frozen or they're gonna mm-hmm. do a cabaret with a bunch of Disney songs. Mm-hmm. But you think, well, what are they going to do on the Princess Cruise Line or or Norwegian? And when it's not a magician, when it's actually one of their stage shows with their performers that is not a circus show, it usually is a cabaret, but just a clientele demographic reason, it is mm-hmm. almost always the worst 80s music <laughs> in the world. And so it's either they'll just do Rock of Ages right. and have some dignity to it. Where at least there's a story and, and you know what Rock of Ages is. Mm-hmm. Or they'll do Ages of Rock, which is not Rock of Ages. <laughs> but I didn't even watch this whole thing. But And I'm sure the performers are wonderful. And I'm sure whoever created the show is a genius. But whatever. I walked in, exited before the show even started. But I was there long enough to hear the pre-Ages of Rock music oh, loop yes, that they're please. playing as people are sitting. And I love 80s music. 80s music Same. is my favorite decade. I love New Wave. I know you you also love yes. 80s music. So I, I you know I love that stuff. But this is I don't know, it's like the the fat that rises to the top 
of the eighties. That's just like, Oh, it's so bad. And Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the songs would be. I mean, it's just guitar hero, dad rock. (laughs) Oh, can can I tell you what the, the ultimate example of this is for me? Just a bad song is Panama. By Van oh, Halen. I was, oh my god, I was thinking about Panama. <laughs> it sucks. It's yeah, so okay. bad. How does Panama go? Uh, so the main hook is Panama. Uh, that's Panama, the exact song uh, that would not stop playing. It is insane oh. that you nailed it. Because it was it's like so Panama. Because I was yep. gonna say cannonball because I don't I didn't know the name of the song. And because uh, I was nope. there going, Cannonball. Yep. It is high school football, Friday night yep. kickoff songs. And it's the worst. Sit down and listen to that song. It has no motion to it. And it's like a Van Halen classic. Like, look, we'll stipulate that Eddie Van Halen is an amazing guitarist, right? An incredible musician. I don't know who wrote that song specifically. It just goes nowhere and it's boring. Right. Yeah. That's amazing that we're thinking the same thing. I wasn't thinking it. I was there and that was the song they were playing. (laughs) It was that exact song. And it was wild because this is happening in this theater and the show hasn't even started yet. Remember, I'm dipping before the show starts. And so I'm just there for the music loop, essentially, for no reason. And there's, you know, Panama. And then the next one is, I want to rock and roll all night. night. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And the weirdest thing is, you know, I also went to Vegas recently mm. and had this mm. had a similar experience where it was a very 80s dad rock heavy Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I would like to point out that 80s mom rock traditionally is mm. way better. Yes. We're talking Heart, by the way. Heart, one of the greatest bands of all time, is classic 80s mom rock and it Heart rules. Name other 80s mom rock, please. Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar is Fleetwood Mac. Are they yep. two 70s or is that 80s too? Both. It was both. I mean, Super Tramp is Super Tramp seventies. Am I still in the seventies? I'm trying to think. Uh, Super Tramp is, has both. I think Blondie, maybe question mark. Oh, Blondie's the best. Blondie I rules. I legitimately for some Blondie, great. but I don't think Blondie's specifically mom rock. I think Blondie's too good to be mom rock. <laughs> Blondie's in every person rock. I mean, Super Tramp is you know. Super uh, Tramp's uh, fucking great. Heavy in my rotation. These are great bands. Every band is great. Anyone that creates art is wonderful. But the specific well, art that thank was playing so was just, and even like songs that are good that get brought into this dad rock canon yeah. end up being my least favorite song. So, uh-huh. you know, I'm thinking Enter Sandman. Yep. Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck. Blue Oyster Cults. Don't Fear the Reaper. Mm-hmm. Living on a Prayer. Anything Bon Jovi, any anything of those. Bon Jovi, yeah. yeah. Journey, here I go again. White Snake, Rush, but specifically Tom Sawyer, because for a lot of places that is the only Rush song that exists. Yeah, yep. and it's weird because on an individual level, these bands are very good, and even these songs on an individual level are good. But that playlist is just soul crushing, and in a way that <laughs> makes you upset. It makes me upset because. I went to Vegas and 80s rock has taken over casinos mm-hmm. and it has become the background of every casino. And I think it's because, and I, I don't want to say something, I don't want to sound mean because people are no, going to listen to ahead. this. I think it's because people aren't dying like they used to. Yes. No, no, dude. <laughs> because we've been on the 80s for a bit. Forever. And because it, it always happens 30 years. So in the 80s, the 50s right, is going yep. is going well. And the 50s, everyone in the 80s is in love with the 50s, which is weird because we're all going to be in love with the 80s. 
but there's no room for the 90s. Like, where is my 90s rock show with Blink and Nirvana and Third Eye Blind? Like, why is there no cruise ship? But that- well, there's a Green Day. That's, I mean, that's a famous one, right? For one, right? American Idiot. I mean, I don't know if it's on uh, cruise ships, but American Idiot was like a big, big, big Broadway show with Green Day. Right. right? Well, I mean, isn't that on an individual level? I'm saying, where is my 90s rock cabaret show? Oh, you're Does like that Jukebox. Exist? Yeah, 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 where's yeah. my Jukebox? Where's my Rock of Ages, but for the 90s? What would we call the 90s jukebox musical? I mean, it would be Semi-Charmed Life. I like that. I do like that a lot. You're just lazy. You're going to pick one of the names, right? I would go to Semi-Charmed Life. The answer to this question is the Weezer Cruise. Wait, but isn't Weezer early 2000s for the 90s? Yeah. So the Weezer Cruise is a thing. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. I'm not making that up. There is a Weezer Cruise. They did it in 2012 and 2014, and they're heavily they call documented it the cruise album. very funny. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say about 80s rock, which is funny because you said pretty much the thing I was going to say is, look, I'm exactly the right age for this 80s rock shit to appeal to me, right? I'm almost 50. So what I hear these 80s rock like playlists, what I think is these are people who are upset they're going to die soon. And <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Like it just screams ignoring one's mortality and trying to recapture the glory days of one's youth, which, okay, look, everybody does that to some extent, but I'm not going to agree with that statement for, you know, reasons, but I Uh will give you supporting evidence in that they had t-shirts. So when I booked this cruise, I booked it for very specific reasons that will eventually be, you know, part of a video I'm making, Mm. but everyone else must have been booking it. Some of them must have been booking it because this is the ship that has the 80s and the the 80s bands (laughs) on. And they had concert T-shirts. They had brought them. They packed them. They made a conscious choice. They knew that there was going to be Ages of Rock or whatever the 80s cabaret is, Mm -hmm. an 80s jukebox musical that has no story, by the way. I mean, this is... So a jukebox musical is a musical in which there's a story, but every time they break into song, they just steal someone else's. Yeah. 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 And it's either a single band or multiple bands. Mamma Mia being probably the best example of like, what the fuck are we doing here? We're shoehorning a plot into a bunch of ABBA songs. Like, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Mamma Mia is a really good movie. I'm not saying (laughs) it's bad. I'm saying, what the fuck are we doing here? Which are two different statements. Okay, okay. I was like, I I can't be associated with Mamma Mia With with Mamma Mia slander, no. (laughs) It is very good. But there's that. And then there is what I call the world's a fun jukebox musical. Mm-hmm. And that is a reference only people from Kansas City would get because that's like a regional theme park that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And this is, there's not really a story. Maybe at best it would be this. They would open the show. The curtains are opening. If it's an 80s thing, they're going, you know, bana, 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 I, I, I. And then that dies down. <laughs> and you're, 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 you're anticipating that the next thing that's going to happen is that, is that a story beat's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what really happens is that they just, try to have dialogue as the band and they're talking to you <laughs> and then they're talking to each other in these weird skits. But it's, it's like this, it'd be like, Hey, you know, Brian, what's that riff? What's that riff that you had going last night? And you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, you mean this one, you know, bana, 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 or, you know, they play ACDC and uh-huh, that, but uh-huh. it's like, that's not a story. <laughs> these aren't characters. It's just yeah. in between songs. They do, nothing for a few seconds and then go back to why you're there. Mm-hmm. That's what this show is. <laughs> wow. But people packed t-shirts 
like ACDC 1989 tour t-shirts ripped up. Oh my God. Faded from wash. These are audience members. Audience These members are audience their members. classic t-shirts. These are my cruise patrons in the staterooms <laughs> adjacent to mine. Mm-hmm. I have packed these t-shirts. Jesus Christ. And, I, and it's, I don't know, it just bummed me out in a weird way. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like that's mean because they were having a better time than I was. So, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm the jerk, but for them, it was a nostalgic experience. It was them being able to see some of their favorite music performed live for the first time in maybe over a decade for mm-hmm. them specifically. But for me as a historian, as somebody that studies history and trends, and as just a human being on earth that is not to that point in their life yet, I was just really sad. You know, I'm like looking down the barrel of of life, but this it's just a ripped up <laughs> ACDC t-shirt at a cabaret show on a princess cruise. <laughs> But they're loving it. So, I mean, I'm obviously the ass. No, no. But what I was what I was going to say is I don't think it's mutually exclusive to say, look, obviously these people are having a great time. And it's kind of sad that these people are having a great time. Like, I, I don't think those are necessarily exclusive things. You can say, hey, enjoy whatever the fuck you want. But also then say, but this like th- this is the <laughs> thing that's the most important thing to you. Sure. That's valid. No, here's why it made me sad. On top of everything. And maybe this is more interesting and less mean sounding. It made me sad because aging, scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Nostalgia is a scary idea to mm-hmm. me. As somebody, mm-hmm. especially as somebody that is very obsessed with nostalgia. It's a very scary concept. But then the sadness of, spoiler, I didn't grow up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was not on ACDC's 89 tour. I never saw that tour. But they were nostalgic for something that they had experienced authentically at one point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm ever going to have that. You may never be nostalgic for something you experienced authentically. That's what you're saying? Yes, because I have found through the years that I have lived, in most of which have been in what we would you know, define as a postmodern society, mm-hmm. my favorite music is 80s music. But this person's favorite music is 80s music because that was just music to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I was like, you're nostalgic for something that you experienced authentically. I may be nostalgic for when I discovered the 80s music that I like. I would not call your experience less authentic than theirs. I would. I would call mine sadder and weirder <laughs> and, and alone at a computer late at night. I mean, they're at some festival that's on fire and, you know, some guy's got his shirt off and he's sweating and he's shredding it on the guitar. Once one in a million experience. And I just, I'm looking up YouTube videos. Yeah, but dude, the, the amazing thing about media and recorded media specifically, and music really is what I'm thinking about here, is you can discover it whenever in your life, whenever it exists, once it's recorded and you have access to it, you can experience it however you experience it. And I don't think that makes your experience less than someone who is there live. It's just different. Okay, Boomer, but let me weigh in here. By the way, I'm not the one adopting the Boomer point of view here. That's Kevin. I'm the one advocating for younger people can... Don't okay boomer me. Okay Layden, boomer. Please. I'm, Layden, I'm, what are your thoughts on this? Is ever no, we're not interested in Layden's thoughts. Uh, the, the fuck? No, yes, please, please, Layden. <laughs> no, but I I connect with what you're saying, Kevin, very much. 
for me at least, like I'm imagining being on this cruise ship and I think I very similarly would be having like an existential crisis staring out at the water. But the idea of like, when I am older, how low am I willing to stoop to feed my nostalgia? And especially on what you're saying, how much will I lower my standards to feed a nostalgia for a thing I never directly experienced? Like, I think the way that nostalgia gets packaged and resold to us now, it's not like that's going to elevate itself and somehow get like less craven. Like, I guess I'm thinking pretty directly of Ready Player One, where it's just like, hey, remember that shit you liked? Right. What if we made it suck and just handed it to you and you're like, hey, remember that? I don't know. Maybe I just don't want to enjoy things. I think that's well, probably the But I think there's thoughtful nostalgia and craven nostalgia, right? Now, Kevin, the kind of thing you do and do so well is thoughtful nostalgia, right? Your whole yeah. bread and well, butter yeah. is looking back on the past with a critical and interested eye. And your channel is not just like, dude, you remember that ride? That was fucking sick. End of video. You know, it's a lot more involved and interpretive. So I think one of the things, you know, being a capital old man that I have experienced firsthand is different types of nostalgia that I can personally experience, right? And I'm watching, by the way, because I have a nine-year-old, I'm showing her some of my favorite movies that I grew up with. We just showed her The Goonies for the first time. And what's nice is getting to actually say, look, I'm not just going to say, hey, this thing is awesome and you better love it. I'm going to re-experience it with my current point of view and, and ask, do I still like this given you know, how long it's been since I saw it last. There are different types of nostalgia. Yes, I agree. I think what you're saying just proved kind of what I'm saying, though, because the Goonies, not to use this phrase, wouldn't be made today. That's 100% <laughs> true. And, and and not in the sense of... They're much too old. Well, not... Well, yes, they're much too old. We're going to look at Hollywood Reporter, Goonies, Greenlit. Yeah, starring all the Stranger Things kids. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly it. That's it. Because Goonies would be packaged as Stranger Things, which is just an 80s look back. Mm -hmm. And so imagine showing someone Back to the Future, but Back to the Future's only point is just being a 50s nostalgia time capsule. Right. Rather than being a lampoon of it. Yeah. Because mm. Back to the Future, when you watch it, it's making fun of the 50s mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think Stranger Things does. Like the moment that no, that's Marty true. McFly goes into the 50s diner and somebody combs their hair back in, in that greaser kind of style... It's like, oh, okay, this isn't this goofy. Remember this, but yeah. in Stranger Things, it's just like, look at that VHS player, and it just and it just it just stays on it. That's right. And it's like three minutes in to just this one shot of this VHS player, and just the noise of it going, and you're just, I was like, am I watching a television show? What is going on? <laughs> I mean, I've I watch all of Stranger Things, but do you know what I mean? Like, and obviously, yeah. Stranger Things is is more than that, but the way it approaches its nostalgia is different than how the 80s approached its 50 nostalgia. Yeah, it's a bit like fetishistic yeah. and mm -hmm. like more reverence than any sort of self-reflection upon the thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it, that's not the only type of thing that's being made, right? No, but I, I think the difference now, music, for instance, mm -hmm. is, is the easiest one, I think, because whenever you talk about movies, people have a much more emotional and there, there's a lot of aspects of movies but music it has a, such a clear evolution with the introduction of different instruments mm -hmm. and how those instruments influenced music mainstream music for a long time was also 
the most experimental music. I mean, to a wall, uh, the ex- experimental, experimental stuff, not necessarily. But once Synths eventually came out, you know, a few bands you've never heard of started experiencing with them. But then all of a sudden there were synth bands. Mm-hmm. Has that happened recently? In the last 20 years, have we gone through a phase musically like that? I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying. I'm just asking because I'm, I'm like trying to think of, you know, that you introduce synth and then it's used in disco for a time. And then there's just synth stuff eventually in the 80s. A lot of 80s pop is pure synth, no other instruments. I feel like you can see a big bump with auto-tune, I think. Uh, yeah, I was going to say with a lot of like digital techniques, some of the things that people are doing, like a Janelle Monet or someone like that, is actively pushing the envelope of what people can do with music. Now, these are not academic, you know, capital a art music people necessarily, but I do think there's a lot of mainstream stuff that is really using digital techniques in an experimental, cool way. Yeah, no, I'm not saying there's not innovation. And I think like Janelle Monet and Frank Ocean are well known, but I don't know if I would, I guess maybe I'm too limited in what I define as mainstream. That's the interesting because question. Janelle Monet now is really popular because of, of their foray into films, but I don't know if they were. And also, I'm pretty sure Janelle Monet is from Kansas City, so huge Janelle Monet. I think Dirty Computer was pre-films for Janelle Monet, but I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's not actually the content. It's just the distribution and just how much there is. That's right. And because I'm saying like, oh, there's nothing in the mainstream that that's innovative, but I don't know the last time I've turned on the radio. <laughs> or maybe I'm just dumb. Well, I think there's also like the dissolution of the mainstream. Uh, Correct. Maybe, yeah. Like the mainstream now is like Disney, Fox, Marvel, everything. Not that it isn't expanded beyond that, but like rather than having a mainstream where it's like everybody watched the show that aired last night and that we know will air once a week for whatever. And this is what's on and this is what people are watching. Now it's so decentralized and so scattershot in like a million little subcultures. So the mainstream pretty much only becomes like media monopolies, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I don't love. Musically, I was just talking with someone recently about how I think it's interesting that There are a a few acts right now that I can point to who are like ultra jazz nerds with very deep and sophisticated senses of harmony and composition who are like shockingly popular. So I'm thinking of like Thundercat, Lewis Cole, to some extent, Wolfpack, people who are, you know, from a again, from an academic musician standpoint, they're not pushing the boundaries of music theory. These are generally kind of, you know, well-established jazz harmony type things. But it's definitely a lot weirder than any mainstream stuff harmonically that's been out for a long time. And I think it's interesting now that we do see very, very popular acts that I think would not have stood a chance, you know, 40 years ago, even if the basics of what they're doing from a music theoretic perspective were possible and known. Maybe it just comes down to the fact that I'm such an analog junkie that I just love that analog stuff so much. Same. I'm not a music aficionado. I feel like I'm an 80s music aficionado, but I I don't know what's happening in mainstream music. I mean, Mm. kind of same. I mean, I know big artists and I listen to new music and I'm not saying like, oh, new music is bad. I enjoy new music. Like without the mainstream pushing the culture together, are we fighting about music anymore in the way that people used to fight about the introduction of, oh, those bands in the 90s, they're too this, they're too that. The only thing that initially came to mind is there are certain like lyrical things 
that are mm-hmm. being used. But when's the last time somebody got upset about the sound? I felt like that was a thing for a while. Like that sounds <laughs> too crap. Not not the lyrics, but the sound. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that's the 90s or something like that. That sounds not appropriate. That sound, yeah. <laughs> People do fight about music, but I think the music fights have gotten dumber and have more to do with the rise of toxic fan culture than anything. Mm. I actually, not to drop a news bomb on you, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. but I did recently join Blue Sky. I now have an account on Blue Sky. And someone on Blue Sky posted, let's say something that is reasonable and would make Twitter mad. And someone said, Taylor Swift is an uneven songwriter, which is, by the way, every songwriter is an uneven songwriter, right? Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as a, everything is a hit person. But if you had any public presence on Twitter and you said, some of Taylor Swift's stuff isn't as good as some of her others, people would lose their fucking minds, right? So I think people do fight about music, but in a kind of ridiculous way that has more to do with identity than the actual music. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I did want to ask, this is me completely changing the subject. Go for it. I, I, I've i <laughs> shown that I know nothing about music a long time. I disagree. Enough. I disagree, Kevin. I think this was a great discussion. That's just because you know that I like your music. Well, you do have great taste in music. That is true. You're emotionally invested in in uh, in my music taste being good enough for it to mean something that I like. <laughs> that is true. I was also going to say, I, I wrote down, I am a purveyor of 80s nostalgia, which is also true, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I would be lying if I didn't say I'm somewhat implicated in this as well, which I think is is fine, and I do uh, knowingly. But Leighton, please. So, Kevin, yes. the thing I'm going to say to you is a very scary way to start a sentence, but... Uh... Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm already terrified that I've shown that I know nothing and that I've been talking about things you have I have no not. idea. You're great. No, this has been awesome. So I saw a tweet that you did. <laughs> oh, gosh, we, okay. Here we go. That here really go. does sound like the opening of an indictment. I, I did everything right. <laughs> you, tw- you tweeted about considering writing a book on dining at Walt Disney World because you don't get to talk about that on Defunct Land a lot. Yeah. And I'd be really curious to hear you talk about that since it's something that you don't cover on Defunct Land and it sounds like you're really interested in it. So, oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book. I've started, you know, a few drafts. Dining at Walt Disney World. I know a lot about that, actually. The thing that I never get to talk about is my interest in food. My interest in music seeps in a little bit to my documentary work, but my interest in food uh, does not come through the screen. Um, if you could smell how the the rooms in which I create the the videos, maybe, but that is a sense I don't get to talk about very often. 4D. 4D, yeah, I'll give you a little scratch and sniff. And glorious smellovision. vision When I was editing this part of the video, I was cooking pizza. Scratch number four. <laughs> oh, that does smell like pepperoni. <laughs> but no, uh, so dining at Walt Disney World is really interesting because Walt Disney World, if you've ever been there, or if you've never been there, Walt Disney World is dissimilar to Vegas in that Vegas has a very specific type of clientele, I think, mm-hmm. in a way that Walt Disney World is much more broad. Obviously, Walt Disney World's clientele is families. But the same idea applies in that this is a place where one thing is happening. In the case of Walt Disney World, you're probably going to theme parks. In the case of Vegas, you may be gambling. You're there for Vegas. That's why you're there. You yeah. know, you're not coming through necessarily that bubble. If you're somehow going through Vegas, the strip is going to be where you're also eating. And when you're eating is something we need to do. And so there's all these things that come with, okay, we have people that are here for a long time. 
and they're all from all around the world and they're all different and we somehow need to feed them. And in the again, dissimilar to Vegas, in Vegas's case, it's different companies and vendors. But in Walt Disney mm-hmm. World's case, it's one company mm-hmm. that is holding a lot of people in a place and feeding them. And there's something fascinating about what that entails and how you need to have restaurants that do different things, that are different things, that cost different amounts, that have different types of food, that have Mm -hmm. different amounts of food, that have different styles, both in terms of what the cuisine is and in terms of how long it takes to eat this food, how long it takes for the food to get to you. And obviously, Walt Disney World also has vendors that come in and help. But the history of it and then just where it's at right now is really interesting to me, just because if I'm a family from the Midwest and I have two picky eaters with me, any restaurant I go to needs to theoretically have something for all of us Mm -hmm. in a way that if you were just at home, you just wouldn't go to that restaurant. But Mm, in in Walt Disney World, you are not cooking most likely and you need to eat probably three meals a day that is created by probably at most three or four different vendors. But realistically, the most food you're encountering is coming from Walt Disney World itself. Maybe you'll find a restaurant that is a third-party vendor operating it. But both in the parks and outside of the parks, at the resorts and stuff like that, there's just a fascinating ecosystem of what kind of food is at the resort? What kind of food is in the park? What kind of food is at the quick service stand? What kind of food is at the food and wine booths at Epcot? You know, what do we have? What do we have for kids? What do we have for adults? How much does it cost? What if the parents want to sneak away to a nice meal? Where do they go? What is a nice meal in the context of a Disney park? It feels to me always, having eaten at various theme parks, it feels to me like a puzzle I am trying to figure out. So all these questions you're asking, I'm asking myself. I'm there with my family or whoever, and it feels like a game I have to play that's very hard to win at. <laughs> yes, they're so good at it, is the thing. Because they do it really well, I think, in general. There's some spots that I think you should avoid. What I find most interesting about the entire ecosystem is how there's a tier system of, oh, that's the worst restaurant and that's the best restaurant. Yes. But they're two totally different types of restaurants. So the worst restaurant in Walt Disney World is often said to be Tony's Town Square restaurant at the front of Magic Kingdom on Main Street. It is an Italian restaurant. As my friend and I say, uh, the air is thick with SpaghettiOs from the moment you walk in. (laughs) (laughs) You're swimming through Chef Boyardee and you sit Uh down and I mean, they might as well just open that can at the table, table side can service. And slurp it out. I love that. awful. But the best is often said to be outside of Victorian Alberts, which is an exclusive restaurant, is, you know, maybe California Grill at the Contemporary, which is a monorail stop away, but it's a totally different type of experience. And even within every park, there's a hierarchy to what is a good restaurant and what is a bad restaurant. And, you know, price doesn't necessarily distinguish because you're the same company. So some people love restaurant A and Most people love restaurant A. Most people hate restaurant B. You can't just be like, well, charge more for restaurant A because that reflects poorly on restaurant B and you own both restaurants. Right, right, right. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. So you either then have to shift the cuisine to be so different that the price difference is is understandable. You have to like tier them. There's different tiers. It's this big, complicated machine. 
of just like, how do you feed people? So that that's kind of it. And also, I just love food. I'm a big food lover. I don't call myself a foodie because I think that comes with Instagram connotations of, you know, of like annoying presentation. Example, yes. I always say, you know, it's chicken and waffles, fruity. but the waffle shaped like chicken and the chicken shaped like waffles and it's huge. <laughs> and it's like, that's nothing. That's not a thing. That's not food. Or, oh, it's it's a deconstructed something, something, something. Yeah. Yeah. What's the term? Molecular gastronomy, which I loathe. Foams. Yeah, foams. Oh. We turn this potato into a, a potato foam, which always bothers me. So, Kevin, I want to ask personally, what are some of your favorite Disney foods? And this can be sure. ones that are still around or ones that are, say, defunct. Oh, shit. Yeah. Kevin just left the call. <laughs> <laughs> Click. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I was, I'm going to trademark the term defunct. Wasn't that a thing on YouTube? Somebody tried to trademark React. Oh, really? oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal. Someone tried to trademark the, you know, I'm going to trademark defunct. To, uh, every time you use the word, I'll get some royalties. That's great. <laughs> yeah. My favorite Disney foods. My favorite Disney dessert is it Sanaa at Animal Kingdom Lodge, and it is the Spice Trade candy bar. It is both defunct and still available. No longer on the menu, but if you ask for it, they have them. Oh. Ooh. So they're still making them, but it's yes. not on the official menu. Yes, it's very odd. So it's a homemade candy bar with coconut and, and pistachio crumble and all this stuff. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's like a sn- gourmet Snickers kind of thing. Ooh. Caramel. That's my favorite dessert, I think. What's the powdered green stuff on? I'm looking at pictures of it. I think that's the the ground pistachio. Ooh, is pistachio okay. green? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's green. By the way, while we're talking about desserts, I do not understand people's boners for Dole Whip. Like, yeah, it, it, it's pineapple ice cream. What, what's the big deal? I've not found a lot of great food inside of the parks. I don't really love Dole Whip. I like churros. I'm not saying they're good. <laughs> I just like churros. Mm-hmm. I'm not standing by them. I'm not affiliated with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't support them, but I, I do consume them. Mickey pretzels are bad. There's a lot of bad food. And that's what makes it so fascinating is sometimes there's really good food, but it's the same people. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's just odd. How is this happening? I think my favorite restaurant, the sleeper hit restaurant of Walt Disney World Resort is probably Sebastian's Bistro. As in the crab? Yes, the crab. Sebastian the crab has a restaurant. He does not appear because he's too busy cooking. Cannibalizing his yeah. buddies. No, I don't think they serve lobster. That's good. Or crab. He's a crab, right? They serve mermaid. Right. <laughs> well, no, they do have a drink called the flounder. Hmm. Where they, they ground that poor guy up and they do a table <laughs> R.I.P. Only one a night. <laughs> yeah, so they have a flounder drink, but that place is great because it's Weirdly cheap, but it's kind of a family-style, Caribbean-inspired place. All of the food at Walt Disney World, you have to very clearly, when you're describing it, say inspired. Uh And I think, because if you say, oh, there's this great Indian restaurant at Walt Disney World, no, there's not. Right. It's not, there is not. There's a really great Indian-inspired restaurant at Walt Uh Disney World, but there's not a Indian restaurant at Walt Disney World. But what I do find interesting and what I do like want to talk about, you know, maybe in a book form or just in general here, I'll, this, I'll just talk about it right now and then you'll, I'll just never talk about it again, is 
they're very clear that their food is fusion Mm -hmm. and that they're inspired by, they'll use that language to not pretend to be something they're not. But I do find it, it serves a very utilitarian purpose because you have a lot of people that come through this resort and park and that do not try different foods. Right. Mm -hmm. Us, you know, I'm assuming West and East Coast people are exposed to a lot of different types of foods. But I, I grew up in Kansas City and I mean, nowadays there's a ton of food, but you could. So you grew up exclusively eating burnt ends. Right. Yeah. Well, no, actually, yeah. The uh, I do. I loved burnt ends. They're great. They're really great. Yeah. No. So I barbecue was our hometown food, but you could get around by not eating anything but American food mm-hmm. or American sure. inspired barbecue, that, that type of stuff. Maybe you had a Chinese food place that you liked, obviously a very Americanized version of Chinese food and maybe an Americanized version of Mexican food. You could find these other authentic places or, or authentic adjacent places, but there's a lot of people that live as picky eaters mm-hmm. um, and never try anything outside of their comfort zone. And what Walt Disney World does is, in some of these restaurants, what they do is they will give you flavors in a very vanilla, held-back way mm-hmm. so that you can eat things that you think you wouldn't like, but because they've just completely drowned any of the edge of any flavor profile that you're not comfortable with, it, it does serve as at its best, it serves as sort of introduction to different types of food for people that otherwise would have no exposure to it, which was what Epcot was originally. So we, you know, out here, of course, we don't have Epcot, but one time we were at California Adventure during the Lunar New Year celebration, and I was fairly impressed with the quality and pseudo-diversity of the foods on display. There were a lot of little kiosks and stuff opened up for that with an attempt to actually have different, you know, inspired foods that they wouldn't normally have. Yeah. And, and Epcot, even in the, in the 80s when, you know, world travel was not accessible in the way that it is now. I mean, it's still not super accessible, but hey, some would say more accessible than a Walt Disney World vacation at the current price mm-hmm. point. Um, <laughs> but in a lot of literature and especially in newspapers, reporters that were reporting on Epcot, they would say things that today you'd be like, what? And they'd say something like, I tried this croissant and they would spell it wrong and they'd describe it. They'd be like, it's, it's sort of a, a, a butter roll that's been breaded right. and buttered. <laughs> and you'd be like, yeah. But to them, it's mind blowing because, you know, this reporter from Indiana that they sent to Walt Disney World to review Epcot for the Indiana Review back when newspapers had enough money to do stuff like this. They would just be like, oh my gosh, I tried this thing in Germany. It was a bratwurst. Maybe a bad example. Obviously, American food is German food, but that's kind of the vibe. And it's very interesting how that theme park introduced a lot of flavors to people that otherwise would not have been experiencing it. But but even me, so I went to Epcot in 1985 when I was 10 years old, not too long after it opened. I forget. When did Epcot open? Oh, 82. So a few years after it opened. So relatively recently. And I remember... I was like, oh my God, German food? Are you fucking kidding me? Holy shit. You know, and I grew up next to New York City, right? It's not exactly a cultural wasteland and it's not like there aren't a lot of communities of people from all over the world there. But yeah, even no kidding. to me, yeah, <laughs> but even to me, and I was also 10, so that was a big part of it, I'm sure. Yeah. But even to someone who was growing up where you could get many, many different types of food, Epcot in 1985 was like, a, oh my fucking God, can you believe this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. 
it's interesting because they really did do a lot of research to try to get the food as authentic as they could. And I talked to some of the, a few of the chefs in preparation for some sort of project and hearing what they did in order to try to nail some of the food was, it was amazing you know, they would, Oh, we spent two weeks in France trying to understand how to make this one thing. You did that. And they were just like, yeah. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty wild. All things considered, right. That you went all the way there to try to, you know, recreate this food. And I said, yeah. And so we imported specific flour for the pastries and all this stuff. And nowadays I'm sure it's, you know, Sodexo or whatever is doing yeah, school yeah. cafeteria. I don't know. I think they <laughs> they switched a lot of these practices. So I don't think the flowers special anymore. But uh, yeah, but I'm I'm really fascinated in, in in all that stuff. Every time I go back to writing it, I write and I'm like, is this interesting to anyone except for me? And then I think, well, oh, for sure it is. You know, for I sure it is. It's also just a difficult thing to write about because the reason I wanted to do it in book form rather than documentary form is what I've experienced through my own consumption of food based media is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, recipe videos are a different story, but describing food on the page brings it to life a lot more than actually seeing it in video. Yeah. Are you a a Jonathan Gold fan? Have you read his stuff? No. So Jonathan Gold was the main L.A. food writer for many, many years. And you can buy collections of his writing. And he was known for finding these like little out-of-the-way mom-and-pop places and writing about them. And it is... Some of the best food writing around. Really, really worth reading. He he died shortly after I moved to LA. So I only really found out about him like after he died. But it's it's so fun and good food writing rules. And I, I highly recommend any. He has there's a collection of his basically restaurant reviews called Counter Culture. A, it's kind of a, a time capsule of Los Angeles when he was writing them, but also just fun food writing from a guy who's not afraid to like try new shit. I've just been sitting here looking at Epcot food pictures. From what year? I just searched Epcot food. What's coming up? I don't know what's coming up. I'm just. What I'm, do you see pictures of? Describe. I'm, bl- I'm blinded by hunger, Brian. Uh huh. I'm not even totally sure what I'm looking at. There's some baklava. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some little pierogies. There's some okay. like little charcuterie type mm-hmm. type things. Lots of pastries and donuts with M&Ms all over them, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a little basic bitch, but I'll, I'll take it. We've got some bows. We've got, yeah, I, I have not eaten food today. So this whole conversation is really, uh, whew. Someone should open a Chinese slash German restaurant and call it Bauhaus. <clears throat> hmm. It's time for segments. <laughs> No, no, Brian, you should let that one hang just like a little bit more. I feel like you deserved that silence. I'm not saying I didn't deserve it, but I'm also saying it's time for segments. So our first segment on the show is our pop culture recommendation segment. And this is where you get to talk about something you've been enjoying recently. Could be a book, a movie, a video game, whatever. We say pop culture, but it really could be high culture or low culture. It doesn't really matter. The name of the segment is What's Poppin'? And the theme song, which we insert in post, goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Great. So, Kevin, as a, as a repeat guest on Late Night, do you remember the What's Poppin' theme? Did you ever hear it? No. Great. So then this question will be relevant. Okay. If you were to have heard it, what would you have thought of it? 
if I had heard the theme that I didn't hear, I, I well, I loved it. Great. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. It was great. I liked that a lot. Thank you very much. Question answered. All right. Moving on. By the way, I was also thinking if um, if someone wanted to, they should open up a, uh, a Chinese slash German <laughs> restaurant and call it, now wait for it, Bao House. I'll help you out and say that I recently was joking on a podcast that I have that I never release um, that I make <laughs> with my friend. We were joking because you know how California Adventure, you mentioned that earlier, is a lampooning of California. Mm-hmm. And if they had done a New York adventure, my pitch, because in California, one of the, the smoothie place in the Hollywood section of the California theme park is Schmoozies. Mm-hmm. It encapsulates that entire concept for a theme park in one restaurant, Schmoozies. Um, and so I was trying to think what it would be for New York. And mm-hmm. what would Schmoozies be in New York? And and what I came up with is it would be probably a Chinese restaurant called I'm Walking Here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. W-O-K. Yep, 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 yep. And then I was in New York and I saw a place that was called Walk the Walk. And it was that. Was it, wait, wait, W-A-L-K, the W-O-K, or W-O-K, the W-O-K? W-O-K to W-A-L-K. Oh, like a to-go Chinese place. I did not go in there. I just saw it on the streets. I guess it's a chain. I'm looking it up now. It started in Amsterdam. Everything I learn about this place doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's making less and less sense. I love it. Yeah, I'm walking here. I like that a lot. What's the, the hot dog place? Is it Award Wieners? Something yeah, like that. Award wieners, yeah. schmoozies, oh just shouting at you puns. Yeah. Oh, and New geez. York, New York wouldn't allowed to be lampooned like that, I don't think. <laughs> California doesn't have enough history or self-respect to to prevent California adventure. I feel as though the people <laughs> of New York would not take Disney's New York adventure in stride. And as they shouldn't. Yeah. By the way, okay, so Layton and I actually together recently went to Universal Studios Hollywood. Okay. Which is a far more depressing portrait of California than California Adventure <laughs> itself. At least a depressing portrait of Los Angeles, but yes. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. I, I don't like Universal, generally speaking. Uh, I can't go on any of the rides due to my hatred of fun. But I was very put off by Universal Studios in general. I mean, speaking as somebody who went to the Florida Universal Islands of Adventure, which is a much better experience than this one because boy people told me that this universal stinks for years and years and i didn't listen uh, yeah and then it you sucks. chose to go with me which made yeah it worse. which made it worse yeah the trial app version of a theme park <laughs> <laughs> yeah it really is anyway you know we could go on a whole universal thing but i don't care it's time for what's popping and so someone's gonna have to answer the question brian what's popping well, you know, this is going to be, I don't think anyone would have expected this oh, from boy. this week. I'm going to say, what's popping for me this week, folks, it's the new Kesha album, Gag Order, which is, I'm into it. I like it. She's trying some new stuff, some cool synthy things going on, altered vocals. I like the sounds. You know, it is not party rock Kesha that you're used to. This ain't your grandmama's Kesha, I think is what I'm trying to say. And I think it's worth listening to. I'm really enjoying it. I believe it's a Rick Rubin production, or at least partly. It's an interesting album, and I've been enjoying it. So 
That's what's Kesha's popping for awesome. me this week. Kesha is awesome. Also, Kesha's Party Rock era is the best of that era. TikTok is is one of the all-time great Party Rock songs. Absolutely. But I just hadn't listened to much, right? And it's a completely different sound than what I was expecting. She was a guest on The Best Show recently and uh, was fantastic on that. Uh, and that inspired me to go listen to the album because she was talking about it. And I was like, holy shit. Actually, I really, really like this. So, yeah. That's what's popping for me. Gag Order by Kesha. Hell yeah. What's popping for me is a collection of tapes that were uploaded to the Internet Archive by one Mm -hmm. Mark Davis Mm -hmm. uh, called Attention Kmart Shoppers, which is cassette after cassette of background music uh, from Kmart stores in the 80s and 90s. Yes. That rules. You win. <laughs> Both yeah. of you will want to listen to this, so I'm dropping uh, the link to yes, it. Yes, I do. I found this because there is a Fallout mod that puts this music on the radio, and I love Look it. Look at this. There's oh so much God. of it. It's amazing. They're so good. They all start with like, you know, it's just like perfect vapor wavy nonsense. So I really, I can't recommend it highly enough if you just want some cheesy easy listening yeah so that's what's popping for me enjoy great kevin what's popping well my recommendation i was talking about 80s music earlier so i feel like i have to recommend something from the 80s that i was sure and then i looked it up and i was like wait a minute and it was 1990 this was released so already i'm off to Uh, a bad start 1990s still the 80s by the way sure um this is (laughs) so dismissive (laughs) i love it yeah (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no, in a good way. You should be dismissive the, of me. Uh, an album that I am obsessed with still, I discovered it a few months ago. I don't know how well-known this album is, but it's called Wrong Way Up. Um, do you know this one? By Brian no. Eno and John Cale, a collaborative Oh, no, album. I don't know this. Ooh. It is one of my favorite albums. Every song is great. The best song is one word. I mean, as far as the experimental goes, it's very reined in. But it's just the way the vocals intertwine. You know Brian Eno. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And and everything he's done, you know, from Roxy. And then he was with Talking Heads, produced a bunch of their stuff with Byrne. But Eno's original stuff, I love. I, of course, he invented ambient music, coined the term. But this album yeah. is mixed with a lot of pop and, and the vocals are crazy. And then there's one song on here that I can't listen to because it makes me so sad. Oh, and it's no. such a scary, sad, cool song. Very great album, super underrated. Wait, which which one is it? It's Spinning Away. And I listened to this in a vacuum because I was listening to a bunch of Eno's instrumentals, probably on a plane because I just downloaded a bunch of Eno's ambient stuff. And then this started playing and I was listening to this song and it's Spinning Away and I was just overwhelmed with this deep sadness. Mm. And I and I, I don't. That is not how I experience music. I very rarely am emotionally affected by music in that mm-hmm. way. And so I go to the internet to be like, "What is this? Is this happening to anyone else?" Every comment on this YouTube video is, "Is this song super sad to someone else?" <laughs> and and everyone, it's the the weird phenomenon of something in that music is so because it's not what you would consider a sad song. It sounds like an '80s new wave. Kind yeah. of, you know, s- slight downbeat song, but it's this weird, bizarre phenomenon. So I think I found some sort of psychological syndrome among a song. I can't wait to listen to this. This sounds yeah. awesome. Did you see that Eno just announced his first ever solo tour? Eno? Yeah, Brian Eno. 
Well, I knew there was a documentary coming out about him. Oh, I didn't know that. Because I wanted to make an Eno documentary mm-hmm. because I, in my brain, no one else is going to make a Brian Eno documentary. Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. And of course, somebody <laughs> did it. And then I immediately get jealous and hateful and spiteful of this person. <laughs> and I think, well, what kind of hack artist is going to make this Eno album? And then I looked it up. Who's making it? Mm-hmm. And the documentarian that's making it specializes in typography. Oh, awesome. And they directed something called Helvetica. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. His name's Gary. I'm going to mispronounce his last name. Hustwit. Hustwit. I looked into his work and I said, I'm so glad that this person, I yeah. cannot wait. I don't know if it, it's out yet. I just heard that it was announced. But his style combined with Eno is going to be nuts. Oh, also another recommendation, I guess, is uh, Brett Morgan's Bowie documentary. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? No, I, no. I wanted to. I haven't seen it yet, though. Moon Age Daydream. It's supposed to be great. It's interesting. I think I went into it with the wrong expectations, but it, it's very much a visual representation of Bowie the artist. Yeah. I thought it was going to be more of a documentary of Bowie the person. Right. But it's like him as an artist. But it, I love... I love documentaries that are weird. I love documentaries that are not normal, that yeah. have fun, because there's no reason documentaries should have become what they have become in the mainstream. There, there's no, you know, clear reason. And, you know, you know how in narrative film, the three act structure and all that, there's, I feel that there's a reason that that happened just because it's easy for audiences to understand and, and I guess the same thing is true somewhat for documentaries, but documentaries, the the standard is so normalized, but it's also ultra specific. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of a talking heads interview or a narrative or even some of the stuff I do, the the, the Ken Burns stuff is such a, mm-hmm. a weirdly specific way of approaching one of the most wide open ended things in the world, which is you have all these images and videos and and people just like tell a story, but it's always such a similar thing. So I love Moon Age Daydream because Brett Morgan is a great documentarian and he made this film that's just not not normal. And so I'm just so supportive of, <laughs> of, of not normal documentary stuff. I've been talking about this a lot recently. I think it does skew on the at least stylistically normal side, but I fucking loved it, is Penny Lane's Kenny G documentary. Did you see this? I haven't seen that one. It's fucking great. It is a wild portrait of a truly bizarre guy. Stylistically, it's pretty straight ahead, but I really, really loved it. Well, there's nothing wrong with you know doing straight stylistic. No, no, sure. I mean that, that's that's also fine. I mean any anything that people can do to make their documentaries weird, make documentaries super weird. Again, make documentaries weird again. Yeah, this would add an additional hour or two to the podcast, but I would be so curious of the like ultimate Kevin Perjurer curated documentary list. Oh yeah, we could not do peaches and lemons and just talk about documentaries for the remainder of the time we have. What do you think? Yeah. Fuck peaches and lemons. All right. Great. Bye. Peaches and lemons are off the table. (laughs) Sure. I can talk about my documentary style more than I could talk about other documentaries. Yeah. Great. Because uh, I think the the biggest thing is I'm not a huge documentary viewer. I don't watch documentaries. No, I'd love to, to hear your style. So the question I'd like you to answer is what's one thing you're kind of bummed about, but three things that you're kind of happy about. (laughs) (laughs) In regards to my documentary style or in regards, is this just peaches and lemons dressed differently? Yeah. What's your documentary style? (laughs) No, that's too broad. 
What the fuck is your documentary style? Is that specific oh, enough? Oh my gosh. Well, Layden, I think you had something, didn't you? Well, I guess what's your like ethos going into making documentaries? Yeah. My ethos is that like for a long time, if you've ever been taught filmmaking or been taught pretty much storytelling in general, the thing that any person with any sort of authority will love to say is, you know, if it's not necessary, you need to cut it. The kill your darlings. And I think that my documentaries, what I love is if it's not necessary and it's not entertaining, cut it. Because if you just cut everything that is not necessary to tell the story, then all my documentaries should be two minutes by that definition. Because mm-hmm. the Disney Channel theme documentary, for instance, is about literally just four notes, but it's an hour and a half. And I think that so much of what I like to do with like the pop culture side of things and nostalgia and has to do with things that would not be deemed super, super necessary in the terms of storytelling. But I think the best stories are the dramas and the details. And Mm -hmm. once you really dig into those details, that's when the story comes to life. So, and that's why I love documentaries that focus on weird things, weird aspects of things. I just hate broad strokes. That's my least favorite thing in the world. I hate the broad strokes version of anything. I never want to see the the bullet point because that's been told and that information is accessible. It's not difficult to find. I just think it's imperative to to do something a little bit more weird and just try to try to relate it to the bigger movements of history. That's what I love to do. I don't know if this is what you should do, but this is what I love to do. You know, just because there's always a next level up as to why something happened. Because in narratives, you have to write all that. You have to write, why did this character do this? And so that's where all those conventions come into play. But when you're trying to understand why something in real life happened, there's so many ways to go with it. And I think that's just the most interesting thing of why did this ride close? And the answer isn't always just money. Sometimes it's, why did this ride lose popularity? And you then are forced to confront the text, which is what people have said, which is very, very rarely 100% accurate, especially when they're not telling you something that happened when they're trying to distill something themselves. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of ethos and philosophies. And now I'm just like on a winding tangent about documentary film. But the uh, but I think I think a lot of times people really like when they'll let other people distill for them. And obviously, I think there's something to that if it is a talking head style documentary. But anyways, also, my biggest thing is I just love including rumors, as long as you point out that they're rumors. Yeah, right. (laughs) If you listen to it'll ruin anything where I'm narrating, but just like clock the words reportedly and <laughs> rumoredly and uh, supposedly, allegedly, because yeah. it's so fun because, you know, this, the rumor was this ride closed for this reason. And obviously you don't want to make stuff up, but sure. you have to mention the rumors because the rumors are so fun. Yeah. And I feel like so many people when they're doing documentary work, they'll say, well, here are the three interesting reasons that something happened. And I found out the one boring reason is actually true. Yeah. And they'll just omit the three interesting ones. No, you can still come to the correct, true, this is what happened conclusion. But like, you got to include the three, you know, wild pe- the people. Oh, the reason is because of, the, you know, it's something so entertaining. Give us one wild rumor, but one you believe. Like, not that you have evidence, but what's, can you think of like one very cool, interesting rumor? Narrow it down to something. 
uh, that that a ride closed. Oh, that a ride closed. Well, in the Superstar Limo episode, a big rumor as to why that ride became what that ride was is because of the Princess Diana accident. Because mm-hmm. it was a ride mm-hmm. about a limo racing through the streets. That's one that I don't know if has ever been confirmed 100% as this is exactly the reason. I'm sure people have supported evidence as to why that's the reason. Mm -hmm. And maybe Imagineers have said that's the reason. I I don't know. I'd have to go back to that text. But that's an example of one that even if you have to say, like, this is the rumor. This is what the rumor was. So you're not purporting or putting into concrete any sort of untruth. You always need to surround it with those qualifiers of, I don't know if this is 100%. So you're not you know, falsely spreading something. That's a great example of even if there was somebody that said there's no, absolutely no truth to the rumor that Princess Diana's car accident was the reason we had to change this ride. Even if somebody had that exact quote and they had it with authority and it's the truth, you can still say an untrue rumor was that. And because that is part of the story, our Mm -hmm. conversation about this, about whether that was true or not is part of history because it happened in real life we're doing it right now and to omit that i think people sometimes think the omission of of those kind of speculative things obviously there's a line that you then reach of ethics and are you going to perpetuate something that's untrue and is it going to harm someone or something especially i mean that has more to do with true crime (laughs) which is a very uh can i use the word nefarious industry oh please Yes, yes, please. So yes, I'm not saying you should accuse people of murder that you're not 100% <laughs> sure or even insinuate that they could have done something they didn't do. I'm more talking about theme parks. And so please do not extrapolate any of this. But in, in the terms of like pop culture movements, history, you know, why movies are made, why rides close, why stuff of that caliber of intensity happens. Well, yeah, it's like myth-making. I mean, your approach yeah. to these things and the way that you know, people have this specific nostalgia for things that don't exist anymore. Like all of it kind of comes together in concert. I mean, it's what Disney encourages with the design of everything. There's lore, there's history. And then with things that close, there's the myth of the thing. Yeah. And I think that you're you're spot on that it's such an important and integral part of discussing that kind of thing that it would be a disservice to leave it out. And especially in, in terms of art and creation and culture and those type, that domain, less so physical action which is much more singular in its reasoning most of the time. This happened because of this, you know, this fell because of gravity versus why was this piece of art made? Why was this piece of art destroyed? Why was this cultural movement? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Like, why did disco happen? The answer to that is not, well, because Jeff invented disco. The guy's name would not have been Jeff, by the way. Um, it would have been something else. But, the, uh, you know, why did, why did this music happen? Those types of movements, those types of of more large scale stuff always have multiple influences. And that's why talking about as many of those influences you can, even if you can kind of prove and through the documentary that like, this is not necessarily what this person was thinking. It's still something in the ether. And I think that's super important to paint an accurate picture of, of time in the sense of, you know, if you're in the 70s and you're trying to come up with the reason why a 70s band created a song and one of the reasons that you said could have happened was later disproved, as long as you qualified it, of course, you didn't state it as fact. The fact that you're still painting a more accurate picture of what is happening in that moment in time 
mm-hmm. has value in my mind. It has value to, in the terms of theme parks. Why did a rise close in the 90s? If I gave you five potential reasons, and then, you know, four years later, the Imagineer that closed the ride or the executive that closed the ride said, here's why, and it was only one of those five, I do think there is still a bigger value of you get to live in that time. Because it's, it's cultural context is what you're saying. Yes, yes. Right? It's, yeah. And that's where you always have to read between the lines of what people are saying, who has the authority to make things the way they are. And, and, I, and I've broken a few things through my documentaries, most recently being Disney Channel. I found the person that wrote that jingle. And so that, was, hmm. that information was not public. Mm-hmm. Only a few people knew it until the documentary. Right. But even in that documentary, you'll see that I looked at possible influences. And so one of the possible influences that I looked at was that the theme sounds very similar to the Mighty Mighty Bostones song. <laughs> what is that song? The impression that I get. Uh-huh. Bum, 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 bum. You know, and yep. that being part of it. And then eventually coming to the conclusion, because I talked to one of the people that, and this was not in the documentary, this was a conversation that was cut, or I don't think I ever recorded, it was over email, with the person that helped create the theme. And this person, Eric, is in the documentary, if you watch it, and he was there at the studio when Alex, the person that made the theme, spoiler alert, was making that music. I said, well, it sounds kind of similar to the Mighty Mighty Boston song. Like, was that the inspiration for it? And what he said is exactly what I'm kind of trying to get at no, that was not the inspiration for it, but I'm sure that I had heard that song and that was playing around that time. And that entire ska movement is the style that the song was in, the jingle was in. So it probably did maybe have something to do with that, you know. And it's like, well, no, I wasn't trying to do this. I don't think I even accidentally did it. But yeah, maybe that's one of 10 reasons we landed Mm -hmm. on this. Yeah, nothing happens in a vacuum. Yeah, and and... Like I said, the singular reasoning for things that happen in the physical world is is a lot more different in the world of decision making and stuff like that. So especially in the world of art. And that's just that's what I find fascinating, especially as somebody that looks at art and culture. And I just find that the more context you can provide, the audience just has a better time. Yeah, totally. The music is interesting. We could talk about this forever. But, you know, I think you would be a opening yourself up to legal troubles if you're like, yeah. That's exactly what that song is based on. Right. Well, also, in this case, the person that actually wrote that theme is no longer with us. So we cannot yeah. ask that person. So that would also, I do not think that that was what that theme was for the record. Right. So I don't think you're going to find, if there's a melody that is exactly like another melody, I, no one's going to say, yeah, I just took that melody, typically speaking. I mean, people sample or make homages or whatever, but no one's going to just say, yeah, I ripped that off. But also, I find the whole music conversation very interesting because it is very, very easy to do things that are sound similar, but to the eyes of people who don't know what they're listening to are kind of the same thing. You know, the recent lawsuits by Marvin Gaye's estate, I think, are kind of in this realm to some extent. I find that whole music conversation very interesting and, and, and sometimes kind of troubling that people are like, yeah, they're exactly the same when they're really not. Or, you know, ants in a bug's life. Two movies (laughs) about bugs (laughs) that were made across the street from one another. How could they have known that they had spent two years working on a movie about bugs? There would have been no way. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what they're doing over there. Do you think it's the exact same thing that we're doing? Is it about bugs? (laughs) They find that out. They're about to hit export. Yeah. If you're you're making a movie about bugs, wink once. Blink once. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're on the other side of the street. Shine a flashlight twice if your movie is about bugs. 
I think that was twice. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's a big, you know, something that I'm trying to do more and more. And as I'm working on projects, I'm working on a project about deal or no deal, for instance. Oh, nice. Ooh. And deal or no deal is a very 2000s show. Uh-huh. But weirdly, it's a pre-2009 show. And so trying to place what's going on, because you think 2009, what happens in 2009 is the bank crashes. There was a massive briefcase shortage. Massive briefcase <laughs> shortage. Everybody hates bankers. And so history would make more sense if Deal or No Deal came out in 2010 and everyone hated bankers because the villain of Deal or No Deal is the yep. banker. Right. But it didn't. That would have been the easier answer. And I'm sure any respectable documentarian or any respectable media critic would have said, well, you know, deal or no deal, everybody hates the banker because of the 2009 uh, financial crisis where everybody hated bankers. But it came out five years before that. So I'm like, well, where did all this banker hatred come from in a show that is very capitalistic in nature, by the way? I was going to say, I thought the villain of deal or no deal was Meghan Markle. No. No. Okay. Explain. Writing that down. It's a joke that didn't land. Well, what was the joke? Meghan Markle was a briefcase. She was a briefcase holder, and people hate her for dumb reasons. Oh, I I I believe there's an episode where the current Duchess of Sussex, I don't know if if she forfeited that title or not, but the Duchess of Sussex and the President of the United States, the former President of the United States, were on in the same episode. That, you know what? (laughs) I'm pretty sure there's an episode. That joke may have flamed out harder than anything I've ever gone for uh, on this show. But I think, Kevin, your no and your cadence on the word no there was maybe one of the most devastating reviews of my comedy that uh, well, I've ever, you know, it was ever a, experienced. You and know, I really it was, appreciated it. It was similar. Like when you real. said that, I had a similar reaction to when you were saying that thing about Taylor Swift's tweet, mm-hmm. which was, there's nothing that I'm going to say about this. <laughs> and I, you know, because yeah. you said, well, sometimes Taylor Swift's music isn't great. And I said, I know that I'm not going to say anything. about this and that's all i can say about this to be clear okay and any gossip or drama blogger is listening here's your headline defunct lands kevin perjurer slanders taylor swift and Meghan markle on podcast yes same episode same episode that's right well we we've looped all the way back around to the original episode title from the last time you were on the show which is is this going to get me milkshake ducked oh Oh, yes that's right I think I walked away from that episode feeling the same way that I do from this one, which is, am I about to get canceled? (laughs) And I don't think the answer is yes. And I think, in fact, that means something differently than it did two years ago. It is interesting. Every appearance I have on this podcast, you know, I think, uh, Brian, at the beginning of this, you said, what word did you say? Kevin? Yes, you did. Hello. How are you? I'm never going to be able to think of it now. You're just just spamming my brain with words. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you said woke mind virus. Yes. I I, I don't know if that made it in there. Oh, yeah. No, it will. It will because that is a a medical diagnosis that I'm uh, coming forward with as having recently gotten. Well, you're going to you're going to see in 30 years on somebody else's podcast, someone's going to say, well, did you see that they just uploaded all of the Kevin Perger episodes of the Late Night podcast? Mm -hmm. And each one of those, they use phrases that are completely never used anymore. And it's an evolution, just the same way that Leighton, you were talking about those Kmart tapes. Ah, indeed. That's right. Woke mind virus. Yep. Uh, what other, milkshake whatever. Duct. What, what, milkshake what, duct. Yep. Which is what a phrase that phrases? isn't used that much. It sounds like a grandpa using the word milkshake duct. Nobody <laughs> uses that term anymore, grandpa. 
Yeah. yeah. Now well, get me my milkshake, Doc. Anything else we want to date severely before we uh, hmm. wrap this up? I mean, the only thing I've ever dated severely is my current wife. <laughs> my current wife is... <laughs> what? <sighs> I mean, that is an accurate description of Rachel. My current wife. That makes no predictions about the future or past. It is just a statement about the now. If you get married, you'll always have a first wife, too. That's exactly right. So, Or, or as some people, as I've heard, my, my ex-girlfriend, who I married. Yeah. And is now my wife. That's Rachel. Kevin... Thank you again for joining us for a second time on Late Night with Brian Wecht. We're pleased that last time, look, no one got milkshake ducked. No one got canceled. Uh, this podcast is still going strong. Unfortunately. I don't think, uh, I didn't hear that. I don't think that uh, <laughs> anyone's going to get canceled from this episode. But look, if you heard anything cancelable, please let us know. And please email uh, the email. Yeah, please, please email us at please Kevin, email, email us. <laughs> email us at, at late night at hotmail.com. Dot late night. Yeah. <laughs> What's the worst email address you can have? Like the worst domain. I made love in the old mill at the funk plan.com. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do have that one. <laughs> that's great. Well, Kevin, is there anything that you would like to plug before you leave us today? I don't post anymore, so I'm, I'm very hard at work at multiple projects. The opposite of posting, by the way, is preying. Oh, yeah. I'm preying. Right. You're preying. Um, <laughs> that, that one did land. Everybody, yeah, I liked that Thank one. Thank you. See, <laughs> eventually, fucking eventually, you get one preying. in. Never stop it. trying. That's, that's the lesson here. You know how you're supposed to yes and people in comedy? No, I, I, I don't know up, that. Straight I don't up know that you. at all. Yeah. I straight up know you a few times. No. <laughs> Which I, I honestly, <laughs> that is my favorite thing is getting shut down. I think it is really, really great. Um, and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's why this show works. The, 100%. And, you know, I, I do agree with that. Yes. And I think you're right. Which is actually a double Yes. Yes, and Defunct Land is an amazing channel. If you guys have Always. not checked it out yet, what the fuck is wrong with you? What is Thank wrong you. with you? We I talk about it all that. the time on this fucking show. So I'm working on many more projects. I'm hoping that they will be released soon. But if you, ha if you haven't seen, I highly recommend the Disney Channel theme video if you have any nostalgia for it's uh, real good early 2000s Disney channel or just in general. If you like documentaries about things that are way too specific that should not be made because it's way too specific and you like to see something like that drawn out over the course of an hour and a half, that's the one I recommend. It's not quite the same thing because it actually predates early 2000s significantly, but I early Disney Channel used to have uh, a show called Donald Duck Presents on it. And I will have the theme song for Donald Duck Presents in my head for the rest of my life. Donald Duck Presents, stories and laughter. Donald Duck Presents, music and fun. I might have switched uh, stories and music in there. Will you sing us out on that? Yeah. Brian Weck Presents. Stories and laughter, Brian Weck presents music and fun. Brian Weck presents a podcast he made by himself. Brian Weck presents <laughs> Defunct Lands Kevin Perjurer. Okay, goodbye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for having me. It was great. Bye. Yeah, it was great to have you back, dude. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Layton, say, say your thing. Layton. 
I'm not going to uh, say your thing. Just do it real Kevin, quick. Kevin, God bless you Just for your patience. Quick. Just say it real quick. Stay safe, come hard. There we go. go. Fuck yourself. Bye. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at Leighton at gmail.com. <laughs>